Welcome to Afroability, a conversation about African business and technology. In this episode, we discuss mobility and ride sharing. We start by giving a context of transportation in Africa. We talk about the entry impact and business models of ride sharing platforms, and then we close with the future outlook of these ride sharing platforms. This episode was recorded on May 31st, 2020. Okay, so first, let's give some context about transportation and mobility in Africa. Most African countries have similar systems for intra-city transport if you didn't have your own vehicle. Buses, taxis, motorcycles. I think the majority of people would have to use buses just by virtue of the income distribution. So Lagos is the largest city in sub-Saharan Africa. The population is, let's say, 15 to 20 million. A lot of urbanization because a lot of people are moving out of the rural areas. And because of that, there's been a lot of strain on the infrastructure, which wasn't that developed in the first place. Different websites I found use different words to describe it. The, my favorite was insufficiently developed infrastructure. No good yeah, road. No good road. Like my experience with motorcycles are it's you know it's fast, it's cheap. Then what's the catch? Yeah, you might lose a leg. Anybody I know who's taken most people I know, I know many people who've been in motorcycle accidents. I've been in a motorcycle accident really? before. Uh, yeah, yeah. My leg, I was I couldn't walk for like several weeks or something. Just all over the place. But it's not safe. It's qu- It's not as safe as a car, but it's quick and it's cheap. And, yeah. all and I guess in a situation where people have low incomes, they would be more focused on like saving money. Therefore, it would be super popular. Also, it's point to point. You don't have to take a bus to this stop, this other stop. You can tell them at the specific place you want to go. When I think about ride sharing in Lagos in particular and comparing it to taxis, I think they're, they're replacing the most. Is this idea of air conditioning as like innovation? <laughs> like I, I honestly, I honestly think that that air condition it just it's hot and humid in Nigeria. It's like eighty hundred percent humidity all the time. But there's air conditioning in these guys. Like this reminds me of when I learned how to drive. I learned how to drive without power steering. So when I got into a car power steering, I'm like, oh my god! You mean you don't have to wrestle the whole wheel? And I was like, this is a major innovation. <laughs> So, so that's yeah, it was it was the ability from get get from point to point with your phone, and I don't have to risk smelling like a petrol station, like or smelling like the person I got lucky to sit down beside on the way to my job interview. I remember one of my first year job interview, like today I'm going to take a nice taxi and I'm going to call, go find a nice taxi from the taxi station, not just a regular taxi, so that I can get to the interview in style. Where I grew up, it was super hard to find taxis. You had to go to a taxi stand. They're just a bunch of taxis and they're not even hustling to make money. They're like, oh yeah, I could pick you up or I could not pick you up. So it's interesting to see there's like some inefficiency in the market because they charge so much money, they can afford to be a little bit lazy and like, like a day school about the whole thing. Yeah. The cars are 15 to 20 years oh old. Oh my God. Oh Jesus. The upholstery is definitely worn out. It's definitely going to be dust on your clothes. Definitely going to be dust if you try to use a seat belt. So you have to take a chance. Um, drivers are grumpy, <laughs> extortionist. <laughs> Jerry, not a good express. Nobody ever tell you. I took a yellow cab and I was all right. No, you were like, it sucked. I wish I didn't have to do this. Johannesburg, South Africa, also obviously a major city. The whole apartheid regime left like a legacy of spatial planning. So this segregation by race and by class led to a situation where a lot of people were living a little bit far from work. By definition, there's going to be some inefficiency in the system. About 30% of people own a car. I was like, oh, that's actually really high. I was like, 30% of South Africans own a car. Wow. So this is a breakdown for public transportation I spoke about. 68% of people use a taxi, 20% of people use a bus, and 13% of people use a train. When I saw this data, I'm like, wow, 68% of South Africans are using a taxi. This is crazy. Why don't they just use the bus? Why only 20% of people use a bus? And then I looked up a picture of a taxi, that call it. It's, it's called a minibus taxi, and really it's just a bus. I'm like, okay, well, you should just add both percentages. This is not a taxi. This is basically a bus. They call it a minibus taxi, but it's a bus. So I'm like, okay, then what do they call a regular bus? They call that a commuter bus. To summarize, majority of people that use public transportation in South Africa or Johannesburg, most of them just use a bus, whether they call it a minibus or a regular bus. Realize all that context, and that's what the market that Uber is coming, coming yeah, into. Well. Yeah, and um, to put it in contrast, for people who are more familiar with the American system, yes, there's some places in America that you don't need a car, and there's some places that you need a car, but regardless, it's still a better environment if you do decide to take public transportation, like what Bankley was saying, where you end up smelling like the driver. So a little bit of a rough environment. So that's all the context. Let's talk a little bit about Uber's context and their entry into Sub-Saharan Africa. Maybe just a quick one or two sentences on Uber. I think most of our audience will already be familiar with Uber. So transportation network company, they were founded in 2009 by Gary Camp and Travis Kalnick. Bankley, have you heard the story of Ryan Graves? Oh, I thought it were three co-founders, which is why I was just waiting for you to finish. Yeah. I'm like, why are there two? The first time I heard this story, I was like, shell-shocked. So Ryan Graves was a database administrator in GE Healthcare. Okay, so he got tired of the corporate life 
and he applied for a job at Foursquare. Unfortunately, he got turned down for, for the job at Foursquare. He started cold calling all the restaurants and bars himself, and he started signing them up for Foursquare, even though he didn't get the job. So he got 30 customers, right? Got this list of customers, emailed it to all the investors and the founders and the head of Foursquare, like, hey, even though I got turned down, here are some people, and you know what? They hired me immediately as a BD guy. I was like, wow, interesting. Then the next thing happened, the most amazing story in the history of Twitter, if you ask me. January 5th, 2010. Remember Uber launched in 2009. Travis Kalanick mm -hmm. sends out this tweet, and I'm going to read the tweet verbatim. Looking for entrepreneurial product manager, biz dev killer for a location-based service. Pre-launch, big equity, big peeps involved, any tips? Ryan Graves responds. He says, here's a tip. Email me, graves.ryan at gmail.com. <laughs> so, we don't know what happened. Hey, I know unbelievably fucking epic I and mean, we don't know what happens afterwards but let's just say ryan graves joins he becomes a billionaire seven years later just an unbelievable story like didn't get a job hustled got another job was on twitter prop apparently like phoned a bunch of folks responded to travis got a job became the ceo and then later svp go to the bay area and find a job maybe you might end up with a billion yeah okay so bringing it all back so we're talking about uber and their expansion let's talk about the expansion now into like africa 2013 august they launched in johannesburg later on they went into cape town and durban what's the reason they picked south africa as an entry point it's always been a test bed for a lot of business historically there's a lot of wealth in south africa not evenly distributed uh, but there is a lot of wealth and a lot of wealthy consumers in South Africa. So that ends up being like a good, um, it's industrialized. They have a lot of manufacturing. So there's a lot of good of wealth and good jobs. They end up being a good place to start. Highly developed, large English speaking contingent, good rule of law, relatively stable country, reliable internet. So most of the stuff you think about. Interestingly, 75% of the top global companies have South Africa as their headquarters. After they went into South Africa, they started expanding in more African countries. So what country did they expand in next after South Africa? Their first major spot was uh, Lagos. It would have to be Lagos, but Lagos is Lagos is contentious because it's Lagos is an acquired taste um, for business and for, for life, I think. But the opportunity is still going to be massive yeah, in Lagos. Based on population and like, if you've already done South Africa, it's probably the highest, second highest in terms of like potential, quote unquote. So I guess it makes a lot of sense. They also expanded to Nairobi, Kenya in 2015. And then they launched in Tanzania, Uganda, and Ghana in the next four or five years. So basically by 2017, they were in about six Sub-Saharan African countries and then two other, others in North Africa. I also want to put this in the context of Uber's global expansion, right? So when Uber launched, it was pretty big for Uber compared to say Lyft, um, which is the other competitor in the US for them to grow and be everywhere at the same time. I think at their peak, they were in over 200 cities. They probably still are um, Uber companies. So I remember traveling a lot in school and it was just like anywhere you went to, the most obscure cities, um, there would be an Uber service. And that was great. So it just, I think of the African expansion in the context of being in more cities and Uber had had a famous approach to setting up, um, setting up in a city where they would just go and just, just go and hire people and just like grind it out. It seemed to me from the outside in that they didn't care as much about profitability initially, um, which is very Silicon Valley, uh, at least at that time. They did care much, much more about being in X number of cities than anything else. And they wanted to be in those cities. And, and there was probably a thesis around things with scale. So the Sub-Saharan African expansion was in context of their like world domination. Um, Uber being the operating system for the world, which is some of the things that Travis has said at previous time. When Uber started expanding globally, other copycat ride-sharing companies also started to pop up. But sometimes it was a matter of timing. So in most African countries, Uber was the first there. But in other regions, they were like second or third because we were like, oh, Uber's launched. This business model, we can quickly replicate it. We know about the local market. Since they launched first, they had some advantages, um, which made it harder for like local companies to replicate. Um, some yeah, we should talk. We should talk about what those advantages are. Right, um, right. Or we can talk about them now. Or later. Oh, I mean, we can talk about some of it now. The easiest thing to talk about is if you launch later, you may have to think about well, should I start afresh or should I buy the person that's already there? Versus if you launch first, then there's nothing to buy. And second thing is like brand recognition. Everyone already knows Uber's brand globally, so you can actually like leverage your brand if you launch first. But if another company starts to come up with their own brand, it may be trickier because. It's surprising how quickly some of these local brands can actually catch on, yeah. even though they don't have Uber's global mic. Because the thing about ride sharing is it's very, very city focused. So it doesn't matter if the whole country doesn't know about you. You can quickly get a brand known. And then you can also figure out what are the local tweaks you need to make to your business model, um, which makes it harder mm. later on. Um, and there's a mm. massive example of China. Uh, this is not a China focused podcast, but anyone who's interested in this, go and read about like the Didi 
DIDI, the DD um, Uber mm -hmm. battle. It's really on. It's really really amazing. It's very very Do you very, have very any interesting. Books, recommendations, or articles? You can post them in the show notes after. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll post them in the show notes. The biggest thing I recommend is there's a podcast called China Tech. Um, and they actually have an episode on this, and I, I really recommend that. So it's just sort of like we're like Africa Tech, but like China Tech. We should do like a crossover episode. The summary for anyone interested is um, in China, the three big companies, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And over time, they all had like different ride sharing companies that they were all backing. Eventually, they all aggregated on one company, which is called Didi. And then Uber came in separately and started to compete with Didi. And eventually they, they sold their, their stake and they gave up on the market and they bought a chunk of, of Didi, which a lot of people saw it as a loss. It was actually a massive win because they ended up owning like 16 or 17% of Didi, which ended up quite quite nice because Didi is like mostly has like a strong slash monopoly position. Yeah, I think the other thing to talk about the expansion in Africa is some of the changes they had to make or they made here um, to to Uber, but also all ride-sharing companies had to make to, 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 to be valid. I think... Um, one is accepting cash, which would be very strange. I feel in the US where it's like, if I had to pay an Uber and be like, here's $20, can I get a five back? Um, I think that would be like weird, but they, they accepted, they accepted cash, uh, became a template. They do cash everywhere and they figure out the, the models yeah, to make it yeah. work. And, and um, cash payment was done in Kenya. First of all, I thought like cash was a African thing, but apparently Kenya was the second city that took cash. I was like, okay, wow, interesting. But it ended up being super big in almost every other African city. Yeah, but it's also ended up being at scale in the African cities because I know they've done it outside of Africa as well. But the biggest test was in African cities. And uh, the general manager of Sub-Saharan Africa in uh, for Uber said, "We noticed that a lot of users that start off using cash, eventually they migrate and convert to start using cards, even in Africa." I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting." Like they get super comfortable with it. After a while, they're like, "Well, actually, I'll just use cards." So it's sort of like a it's a, it's a nice entry point because eventually you don't want them to use cash, right? Cash is, is, a, is a hassle. I don't know if it is. I don't know if it's that big a hassle. I think it's, I think it, I don't think so. So I, I don't, I know that Uber does. I think it's more like you're looking at it as um, the benefit of using, of using a um, card versus cash. I'm looking at it as having a user use something instead of card. So the angle is like, I, I think that like the cash thing is pays for itself. And especially for the down the line, they, they convert. Anyways, they know that, so that's why they're doing it. They did a lot of like financing in Kenya and in South Africa. They that was they tried that at scale in the US. They lost a lot of money doing that in the US, and they they had to scrap it and sell the company. I think, um, but they tried that in in um, in South Africa and Kenya as well. They also have this is interesting thing I saw. They also have fleet owners. I saw this in Nigeria where I yeah fleet managers. So I can have 10 cars. They have companies that I can call and be like, hey, I have 10 cars. They will go find me drivers, maintain the cars, manage Uber, all for a fee, and they monetize my cars on Uber for me. So I just buy the assets. And they have companies that I can, that are fleet managers that they work with that would just maintain my my fleet of luxury vehicles um, for Uber. So they'd handle the maintenance, all of that stuff, and probably give me a report or whatever. Another thing they did is they had a lot of lower cost options, which were sort of semi-specific to the African region. So a few interesting examples. In Kenya, they have Uber Chap Chap. Uh, an Uber Chap Chap <laughs> is a low-cost fleet option using like fuel-efficient sedans. So a lot of words, what does it really mean? It means basically most cars were like gasoline, obviously, but this, these are more like fuel-efficient. Therefore, the, the driver has fewer fuel costs. Therefore, the driver has less cost overall, and then, then they can charge like a lower price of rider. So it's like a win-win. And they had to use Stambic to finance the car. So it's actually like, it's an interesting system because they have to do some financing on one side, some car leasing on the other side, and the driver on one side. So quite interesting. The thing about the financing is, is the, their thesis on the financing was always, if somebody goes to Stambic, for example, and says, hey, give me a car loan, they're not going to have enough credit. But if they're an Uber driver, and they an Uber can provide proof of how much they Uber drivers earn, they can get credit. You know what actually struck me that is Uber must be providing some kind of guarantee. Like it's not gonna be like Stambic is not gonna be like, I take your word for it. Uber drivers are profitable. Um <laughs> I don't think that's how banks work. Um, but that's very fascinating to be able to take on that kind of risk um at scale. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the FinTech episode where people were like giving out loans 
and they're trying to figure out like what is the credit rating system that makes sense before we can give give loans. And this is more interesting because there's collateral, quote unquote, because there's a car they can get back. And then there is a history of revenue that the drivers are making because they're an Uber. So if you combine collateral with a history of revenue, maybe it makes more sense and they can get more money. So it makes sense. Uh, another lower cost option they had was Uber Boda, but it's a motorbike system that was first of all launched in Kampala which is in Uganda, and then later on they launched it in other African countries. I'll give Uber credit for that. Like What Uber did well is they tried things. I think what you find is many companies um, come into pre-packaged Western solutions for African markets. We see a lot of that like, oh, this works in the US and this works here, but like they really went hard and empowered their local teams and they made changes. They've tried Uber Boats in Mumbai, in Nigeria also didn't work uh, or didn't scale at the very least, they learned a lot. They Uber border, they've tried different things in different markets and they've made like different choices. Obviously we don't have, I'm not privy to those decisions, but you you can be sure that the teams have felt empowered to make changes or recommend changes that are localized for their yeah. own markets, one, which is very- One like, thing I found interesting, which, so when we say they had lower cost service options, the flip side of that is why didn't they have higher cost service options? Because almost all the markets I looked at, every new type of service option almost always tends to be cheaper. Now, the answer may be obvious, right? Not that many people have money. If we're going to have more options, let it be cheaper to get scale. But it's also interesting. There are a lot, some people that have a bunch of money. Why don't you go higher end? Um, maybe we don't have a, enough insight in some of the conversations. It is an interesting insight that the service options are almost always lower. And then the impact of that is the driver earnings typically tend to go down. Uber will tell you you're going to get higher volume or your costs are going to be lower. So like profit-wise, you should be fine. But it's interesting that if you keep on giving lower cost options, the drivers may feel um, a little bit unhappy. But we can also even post, we can we can just like poke at it and, and guess, right? I like one is the obvious one that people don't have a lot of money. The other is like software businesses that are in theory, zero marginal costs tend to not scale at as high margin businesses. Like if Uber has built all this software backend to match the drivers to routes, to, to optimize routes and all of that stuff that they built centrally, is you do need volume for it to be profitable. And no matter the size of the margins required to make it profitable to run the software business for the few, like people like you looking for Uber Black in Lagos. Yes, which I am um, looking for, by the way, just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> I want my Mercedes to pull up to the four points and take me to the club. Sorry, I'm kidding. Uh, it's but it's it's that's that's where that's where the um that's where the 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 disconnect comes in. I think if if we move in, you, you start to see that as they expanded, they started facing issues with government, issues with drivers, partly because they ran a business a certain way, and they tried to drive more volume. Their customers in 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 Nigeria or Sub-Saharan Africa are typically people that have their own cars. Versus in the West, it's it, it sort of the split is more people who don't have cars rather use Uber. But in Nigeria or Sub-Saharan Africa, it's the people who have cars and looking for an alternate form of transportation. And I just, um, to get that volume, so to continue convincing people that it doesn't make sense for them to drive, you need lower and lower prices. I, I agree. Although you can also say with customers, because it's not mutually exclusive. It's not like they would say it's only Uber Black. It would be a customer segmentation, right? There'd be like four or five different options, and then you'd get the best of both worlds. The customers would self-select, and the people who want to pay for the higher one would pick that. People who don't want to pay would pay the lower one. So you would actually, like from a purely economic perspective, the revenue would be higher because you would get the best of both worlds. It's not like you would lose the more expensive people. They always have the options. Um, I still understand why they didn't do it, but there's a rational way to argue that they could do both because the optionality, you only get upside. No one has to use the Uber Black. But it's a it's a two sided marketplace, right? Because you need to find the drivers and the vehicles. I also think that that's where you, where it breaks down, um, because of the two sided marketplace. And as as they kept growing, they also had to drop prices to get volume. In Nigeria, that pissed a lot of people off. Um, they dropped prices forty percent uh, in Nigeria. That. That was yeah. yeah I had uh, I have some friends and there's they were using Uber as a business where they would buy a car and then they would get someone to drive the car and then the person would pay them like a regular amount mm -hmm. of money like an annuity and based on the fact that Uber dropped the prices it messed up the economics of that business so if Bankley for example owns like seven cars and each month he's getting let's say five hundred thousand naira. Um, and that drops 30, 40%. It may, it may not make sense anymore to have bought the cars in the first place because you already have the fixed costs you've eaten and now like the depreciation doesn't match your regular income. So understandable why some people would be happy. And that's not even the drivers. Those are people that are already semi-well off, 
trying to benefit the actual drivers. That's actually their livelihood. So understandable why they wouldn't be so happy. People, they, they didn't like it. I think it, it led to a casket of ill will against Uber. Listen, in Germany, I'm most familiar. Yeah. Um, Although we should bring it to the fact that part of the reason for the price reduction obviously was to get more volumes. It may also have been from competitive pressure because of Taxify slash Bolt. There was competition. There was definitely competition from, from Bolt and, uh, Bolt and um, there are over a dozen they're retro bunch. apps in Nigeria, for bunch. example. <laughs> they're a bunch. Um, so there's so much competition. And the reason why the competition was different is Uber takes 25%, um, a higher cut at least, than the other than the other ride-sharing companies. They would take as low as 10%. I've seen, there was one domestic one that takes 5% even. Crazy. I think the biggest second company would be Bolt, and Bolt was taking 15 It's interesting that these companies are so willing to take a lower cut, because a lot of people know Uber is not even that profitable. I think Uber says they're only profitable in like four or five major markets, quote-unquote. So not likely they'd be profitable even with this thing, but I guess based on competition and how you do your revenue profitability game, you may want to change prices later. I just think it's interesting. A lot of people are willing to undercut, um, but I guess with competition, you yeah. got to do what you got to do. I mean, if you don't invest in, if you think about it, right, Uber invests in a lot of PhD economists. Like they do a lot of really cool stuff on the back end. Uber's engineering team is definitely very well regarded in the industry. They make a lot of like open source tools that serve as a benchmark. We spoke about cash. We spoke about lower cost um, service options. A few other things we'll rattle through. They adopted a lot of local payments options. Um, so like M-Pesa, which we spoke about in our first episode and a few other ones, which of course is mandatory. Most of the people are using that. You have to do that. They also added some driver safety features. Uh, so this first of all launched in South Africa in 2016. And whenever I'm in Nigeria, I always ask drivers, hey, why do you use Uber or why do you use Bolt? Because a lot of people use both and some of them are like they're very open to talking about their preference for why they pick one. One of the drivers said, if I'm an emergency, if someone has a knife to my head or a gun to my head and I press this SOS button, mobile police are going to come, they're going to find me, they're going to save me. But if that happens to me in bolts, I'm up a creek. So I was like, oh, wow, this feature is actually like a differentiator that helps drivers pick Uber over bolts. I was like, interesting. Yeah. Another, yeah. another reason um, a lot of the drivers say they pick Uber over bolts is... If you have a customer service complaint, let's say you say um, the rider um, damaged my car or whatever, Uber is much faster at responding and taking care of the driver and looking into the issue and like both they may not get a response for a while. So there are a few reasons. Maybe we don't need to go down a rabbit hole, but there are some differentiators that are not obvious to riders as to why drivers may pick one of other in developing markets. Because these are things I wouldn't think about in, in America as a differentiator. I'm sure if I ask a, a driver here, why do you pick Uber versus Lyft? They wouldn't give reasons like this because the market is completely different. I, I yeah I also think even looking at the the drive the the drivers in, in Nigeria it's just a yeah it's just a very different market. Governments and driver relations. So I I I just think they've they've struggled with with that. Um, on one hand, it's been positive. I think there's two ways to look at it. On one hand, it's been positive. In theory, Uber comes into these markets, provides a lot of jobs, modernizes modernizes these different economies, and state governments have been in theory happy about it. And everybody has been mostly happy about it because at launch in mo in many of these markets in Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, at launch it was a premium product, so it was priced highly. It wasn't for everybody. It was people who used it liked it because it was great and the cars are comfortable. I think as they scaled and as they dropped prices, people start realizing things they don't like about it. That's where that's where it got challenging for them because you start with the price drop in Nigeria, uh, where they dropped forty percent. Drivers got angry. Governments got in into the price drop. Not directly. Not telling them you can't drop prices. Um, at least not in this case. Um, government would not say that. But that's when they started getting a lot of attention. One thing I found interesting in Nigeria is that they, there was a employee labor suit in Nigeria took them to court. There was a class action suit in Nigeria to classify them as employees. Um, but that was... Uh, yeah. So they got a decision in a year and it was basically just... It was dismissed as being... Not my words, the judge's words. Speculative, academic, and hypothetical. The GM of Uber SSA said there have been fewer regulatory hurdles in Africa compared to other international markets. And he cited the case of Kenya where the government said, look, there isn't going to be any form of violence allowed against these drivers. It will not be tolerated. And they actually charged six people um, for like attempting to attack Uber drivers. So I think, you know, as they say, everything in life is relative. So even though they may have faced some issues compared to what they face in other international markets, like, I don't know if this is correct, but... As of two years ago, Uber is banned in, in Germany. And that's because, like, the German taxi officials are like, look, we don't want this. So 
Uber was definitely going after like different cities with different like yeah. like they had an agreement. You drive for Uber occasionally. The cops in, in in Paris would call Ubers and lock up the drivers, but they had a lawyer just to pay the bill and put you back on the road. Yeah. Wow. So it's all relative, and I think in general it's fair to say they face uh, fewer challenges in Africa. And I can speculate. I think the reason is. The taxi industry in most African countries, and I can say, for example, Nigeria, that's what I'm most familiar with, they aren't as organized and they don't have enough like political power to nudge Uber the same way it would happen in other countries. Like, is there a like Nigerian taxi th- company that pushed the government? I think there probably is, but they have less power than the German one or the American one. I, I, I think I think it's it's less that it's it's more like it it doesn't cut into the market that much. I think that's a challenge. I, I I honestly think relative to the impact on because remember they're going after people who have their car. So the the user, this is a, a hypothesis, but the user participation is Uber drive my car yellow taxi. It's not Uber or yellow taxi. Like if I don't Uber, I drive my car before I get to yellow taxi. So it I, probably is denting, definitely affecting their business, but maybe not as much as it would affect. Oh my god, I'm never going to take a yellow taxi in New York anymore because I have an Uber in the same way. So maybe the impact is not quite the same. I think my mom would take a yellow taxi. So like, and like she would still take a yellow taxi. So some people who do that, I just don't know that the develop is that strong. However, in Nigeria, post the price drop, they started getting heckled, harassed by government officials. Um, they were supposed to get apparently hackney permits, which you need to convert a car from personal to commercial use. Uh, the company was supposed to be on a printing license for printing a, a fleet of, of cars. And these are things that they've done in other markets, by the way, globally. So this is not without without reason. I think a lot of these issues are still getting resolved with the ride sharing. It's, it, it's happening. But at the same time, they're also seeing a ton of competition. Now, the competition is coming from other ride sharing companies, which also have other cars on the road. So Bolt, O-Ride, O-Pay Group, if you will, um, ETC and local local competitors but it's also at the same time coming from other types of transportation like motorcycles so i think that the competition did not just come from other ride-sharing companies it came from other types of ride-sharing companies so we talked about motorcycles getting around on motorcycles earlier on is why not put motorcycles on an app similar to uber they've done uber border in other markets and then people came in at scale with a lot of foreign money in nigeria to invest in that concept and it it is big. It definitely made a difference. Because now I can go point to point, avoid traffic, risk my life a bit more, but avoid, avoid traffic using an app the same way I use an Uber. If in these markets, a lot of people don't have that much money and you want to provide a service, you have to make sure the drivers are still happy and make a lot of money and you reduce the money for the riders. So the best way to do that is to remove the biggest fixed costs or reduce the amount of the biggest fixed costs, which is if you go from a car to a bike, fewer maintenance costs, fewer gas costs. So it's an interesting market there. Just to paint the picture for everyone, in 2016, there were about 56 ride-sharing competitors in Africa. But Uber had leading market share in all the countries they were in. I was like, oh, wow. So a lot of competition. And the reason why they had leading market share is some of this competition is just, we know the market really well. Let's put together an app. But it's unclear how strong some of these competitors are. Based on the data, it actually seems your biggest competitor is almost always Bolt. And then in some specific countries like Kenya, they have like another company, which is called Little, which was a big competitor. But 56 competitors, but I'd say maybe only like three or four big competitors um, in most of the markets. And I think for context, Bolt is relatively much smaller. Like Bolt is not, Bolt is not, um, I think Bolt is, latest valuation is 2 billion euros. They just raised the money a few weeks ago at 2 billion euros. So compare that with Uber's market cap. Yeah, so, so to put that in context for everyone, Uber's market cap is like 55 billion. Lyft's market cap is like 10, 12 billion. And this is two. So it's like, yeah, way bigger. Two versus 55, like 25 X bigger. And part of the reason why Bolt uh, slash Taxify was able to come in and do some damage was they take uh, less money from from the drivers. So the 15% versus Uber's 25%. And also they just seem to be more aggressive with promotions. When I spoke to some of the drivers, they always mentioned they had like fewer hurdle rates to get all these multipliers with Taxify. The interesting thing I find when I talk to drivers also in Nigeria as well is they have all this weird, uh, it's probably similar in the US as well, but they have all this, well, weird to me, but they have this interesting gamified hurdle rates type trips, like, oh, take three trips in a certain area on Tuesday evenings, get an extra 2,000 naira bonus. 
Um, I love it. I love it. Since I love economics so much, it just makes sense. It's like demand and supply. If, if you know you're going to have some supply shortage because most drivers don't want to work Sunday midnight, just add some multiplier. Some people do it. You'll be net better off because there's more liquidity in the market. So from a purely economics perspective, I just love it. And hopefully it makes all parties better off, theoretically. <laughs> okay, so that's competition. I'd like to highlight one thing we didn't mention before on the driver and government relations. There were a lot of drivers that had a lot of positive sentiment about like Uber and ride sharing services. So maybe just a few minutes on the positives. Some drivers said, oh, I have more freedom. I have more independence. My car is my office, my favorite phrase. Some migrant workers, it's easier for them to start an Uber than to get like a regular job. So if you're from Zimbabwe, if you're from Zimbabwe, you're in South Africa, instead of finding a regular job, you can just like, oh, do this Uber thing. So there's a lot of benefits um, from Uber and Bolt from the driver's perspective. Just wanted to highlight that a little bit so we, it doesn't get lost. Oh, yeah. Many people just love the be your own boss, be your own boss uh, aspect of it. That was definitely my read of it as well from talking to drivers. Um, we haven't spoken a lot about North Africa in this podcast. We're mostly focused on um, SSA, Sub-Saharan Africa. But it is interesting to know that Uber bought Kareem in 2019, March. Yes. Um, and that was one of the few places where, oh, we actually need to buy a competitor. They're doing so well. So we're not going to focus a lot on that there. It's just an interesting contrast. Because before I said Uber is leading all the markets they're in, that's leading all the Sub-Saharan African markets. But in North Africa, mostly Egypt and Morocco, a little bit different. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I'll put this in context. So... We mentioned before that Uber was pulling out of some markets. So basically from 2016 to 2019, Uber pulled out of China, Russia, and Southeast Asia. And when I say pulled out, they pulled out by getting stakes in whatever the biggest player was. So we spoke about the China one. They got a stake in DD. That stake is worth about $8 billion. So that's actually oh, amazing. It's an amazing outcome because that's just straight to the bottom line. They sold in Russia to Yandex and they got a 38% stake when they left the market. That stake is worth... $1.4 billion. Again, you don't have any operational costs. It's just an equity stake, so also sweet. And then Southeast Asia, they got 23 to 30% of Grab, and that's worth $3.22 billion. So if you add all these things, they have about $12 billion. Now, it's not actually cash, right, because equity stake, and they may get diluted, but it's still just interesting that, yeah, you leave a market, but if you leave on the right terms, you may actually be, be better off, because I don't know if they'd want to be competing with DD or competing with Grab, because those are very well-funded. They're mostly funded by Vision Fund. So it's not like you're competing with people that don't have money. Yeah, you're competing with very. Um, it also like goes back to just a quick side note around SoftBank funded companies not wanting companies to compete against each other. Like, why would you want to comp heavily funded SoftBank companies to burn both burn SoftBank money to win? You would think that you think that theoretically, but funny enough, DoorDash and Uber and Uber Eats they're funded by um, SoftBank and they've been reducing prices nonstop. So sometimes they do things that are, I won't say illogical. I would say unexpected. And the reason they do it, the reason it's unexpected is just because SoftBank is giving you money, you still have some agency. You're like, well, if we merge, we may get all these negative downsides. So we're not going to merge. And they can't, they can't compel you to merge because they're an equity state. So sometimes it's, it's interesting how things don't go as planned because SoftBank is funding so many different companies that sometimes it's just where they burn its money against each other. Yeah. So back to the red sharing companies in, in South South Africa, I think, I think it's, it's more, I think the competitors in South South Africa focused on driver experience. Not so much customer experience. I think they over-index a lot on driver experience. And that's how they were able to enter the market. So what does that mean? That means lower payout rates. That means um, better driver apps. Um, but are the apps that, better? That, yeah. Better driver app experiences, let's call it that. Okay, I, um, I, I would say the biggest thing is they took less money and then the drivers felt like they have money. The app experiences, maybe that's argued. Yeah, but but it's more from like the focus on what does the driver want? But I would say the Uber focus on this here is what does the rider want? So like if you say like, I don't like this ride, Uber gives you money back. But if you complain about a ride on Bolt, like you are going to get a call, you're going to have to explain yourself. They're very driver. They, I think the other, the other, the competitors came in by being very driver friendly, which is, I mean, in that market to compete against Uber as a second, as a second mover, a smart thing to do. And they were able to build some kind of scale because they had funding and they were driver friendly. You can't beat Uber as Uber's game. If you're going to have a car, let's, let's use the word sedan. You're going to have a sedan. Drivers are going to get some money. Drivers, uh, riders are going to get a cheap price. It just seems unbelievably difficult. You have to find like a sideways orthogonal way to beat them. That's why I love the idea of like the bikes. Let's do the auto rickshaws, but just a car. Because at the end of the day, it, it is a discount game. And how are you going to raise enough money to go against Uber? You may be lucky like Bolt. You get some investors. You have money. You're getting in Eastern Europe. But it's it's pretty difficult. So I, I think... I think a lot of the competitors underestimate the amount of capital they need to succeed on the market. Um, but many people who drive, drive for Uber may not necessarily love it. Um, but I feel like 
Bolt, a lot of the other companies really focus heavily on the driver experience. So training, events, promotions, and for the, for the customer, they really focus on just on price. So they don't just cut prices across the board. They do a lot of promotions, uh, temporary. You get all kind of coupons in your, in your app. If you're a taxify, does that quite a bit. Bolt does that quite a bit. That's the first thing. I think the second thing that I've seen competitors do in those markets is around this, uh, new business models. And you get into like the, the model, motorbikes and the tricycles. So in, in, in Nigeria, you have this motorbike companies, Maxo Engines one, Gokada is another. Opay also has their own motorbike uh, business, but it's a very different model. They, you, they charge you, they give you a motorcycle, a helmet, a maintenance. It's great. And then they charge you 3,000 naira a day, five days a week. You can work for seven days a week. 3,000 naira five days a week, that is part of the refund amount for the motorcycle. And until you pay off the bike, and then you can still stay on the platform. Wait, wait, so why can't I just put off my phone and take the bike and drive to they have, another they state? Have all kinds of, they have GPS and security in the bike that you can't disable. Okay. Like they, don't just give, they don't just give your bike any keys and be like, please come back. So, so let me explain. Uh, I mean, let me understand. 3000 per day, and then it's capped at some amount. Which the amount is the it's, price of the yeah, bike. To pay off, to pay off the bike with some, some interest. And you two thousand a day just to access the platform and get rides. That's all. Full stop. Mm. Okay. Context for the do, audience: three thousand naira. You have to divide by three sixty or four fifty. So just think about it like eight dollars per day. Yeah. So it's like it's not the worst thing in the world. Is that and some of these drivers can make as much as ten thousand a day, mm. right? So context, right? The idea is you make ten thousand a day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Pay three thousand a day, five days a week, and different companies do different forms of a flat fee for the motorcycle for the. Set up our maintenance. Yeah. So it could be three thousand, it could be ten, five, four thousand, it could be two thousand. I like it a lot. It could be different bikes, it could be different because you can the main things you can tweak around. Yeah. Low quality helmets, low quality motorcycle, the smaller engine size. Yeah. Many things you can But this is what I was alluding to before, but I think you had a slightly different take. You have to go with a different angle. Either a different like ride experience, um either a different platform or different business model. I, I'm just not convinced you can out Uber Uber by getting a regular car. It, it, it seems like they've already I won't use the word perfected, but they've almost perfected that model. They can use what is working internationally. They already have scale. They have a better brand. I, I like stuff like what you're saying. That's way more interesting. Like Ope has Ocar. I'm like, I, I just don't know how, how that's going to work. I don't, I, I, I want to spend some time with this bike thing for a while, but I also disagree with you about like out Uber and Uber, especially for the reasons you talk about. Let me talk about that first. Get in there. The reason you talk about like, it's very local and it's very, um, Uber, you can argue Uber may be over-engineered, if you think about it. The tax, the, the Bolt app is the Bolt app is ugly, like it's not great and it's not smooth. But does it get the driver here, you know? And does it get me to where I want to go to in a nice air-conditioned car? And the Uber app is smooth and the GPS is great and I can text the driver in the app and I've all added functionality. But okay, how do you care? About Hypothetical that? question: If Uber were to reduce all their prices by eighty percent. Do you think Bolt? Who's more desperate to win that that market? That, that's basically who's going to spend the most amount. Of, Uber has sold stakes in three different regions. I don't think they're willing to sell any stake in any sub-Saharan region. They have leading market share in all these in all the Uber, sub-Saharan Uber, countries. I, I, I love this conversation, but the thing is, like Uber has a great higher fixed cost base. So no matter what, Uber will be losing one unique transaction. Even yes, but Uber has been losing money for ten years, so they can continue. <laughs> yeah, but but and that's exactly that's exactly the point. They don't want to do that anymore. Like you, it's it's definitely just going to be game theory. It's like, why am I bleeding? Do you believe they don't want to do it anymore? I, I I'm looking at the stock market and I don't think they do. But now we're just now we're getting into like game theory and like company A does A and company B does that. Um, but but I honestly think that like even with, I don't think it's a, it's a done deal. And I think this new business models from the different companies and also the implications the implications of all this right here, which we haven't really talked about um, on this podcast, but the implications to logistics and the applications and the proximity to like building a logistics infrastructure in those markets and the utility of that and being able to plug into Jumia or, or e-commerce or food delivery uh, as a pivot for, for some of these businesses, I think provides a, a different angle from people transportation. Yeah, I'll actually, I want to spend a few minutes on that. So we spoke about competitors before. And I think, to me, the most interesting competitor is Opay. We spoke about Opay on our first podcast, one about fintech. The reason why Opay is interesting is Opay is trying, like, 16 different things. And across those 16 different things, they can do some cost allocation that makes them super dangerous. So so what is Opay for people who didn't listen to our first episode? Opay is basically a super app. Um, Formerly Opera, which was a browser that was bought bought by Chinese investors, 
became super popular. They launched around 2018, 2019. Right now, there's O-Car, which is basically a ride-sharing thing. There's O-Ride, which is basically bike. There's O-Food, like Bionicle said, which delivers food. There's O-List, O-Leads. I won't go down the whole list, but suffice to say, do a bunch of different things, and they raised $170 million in 2019. So I would be super worried about them because they, they have different business models, and they can use money they make from one area to push down another area. Basically, the Amazon strategy, like, oh, we don't mind if we're negative on O-Ride, but we can get a lot of money from O-Food. Anytime you have a competitor that can subsidize and, like, they don't mind if they get 0% zero, zero margins in your core business, you have a high chance of not doing well. I agree. It's an interesting competitor. But the challenge is uh, the unpredictability of regulation is, is going to be a long pull. It's not that the regulation is harmful or painful or they have to pay a high fee. I think that's not the problem for ride sharing is that it's unpredictable. In that like what happened, you could just get banned. It doesn't matter if the regulation is harsh because you can price that and put that in your, in your Excel model and determine if you can be profitable. But unpredictable regulation will always be a long pull in some, some, some sub-Saharan African countries. Customer value, like, has been established. People want it, people use it, people like it. In theory, it's a zero marginal cost business software, right? In theory, you build an app once, you use it 10,000 times to book rides. Like you make money on each ride and you break even on the 15th ride and pure profit. In theory, in practice, I think what is hard to say from the outside in is what the um, hidden costs that exist in, in the run the business are. And those are things like financing business you know if you become a bank and you start guaranteeing loans um how much do you lose on that and how does it affect your business ancillary support services customer service ongoing cost of regulatory compliance like you have to pay for stuff and get licenses and all kinds of random stuff as with all african businesses or many tech businesses in, in sub-saharan africa you have to wonder about the relative size of the market for them to be profitable like how many people want want what they're selling can afford what they're selling and I, because the baseline is not the number of people in the market, especially in, in as the world is entering, entering a period of persistent low growth over the next few years, what is what does that mean if you're a ride-sharing company? I am I am probably more excited about the different business models. I think those are more exciting to me because you can legitimately pay a flat fee, make money back on the financing, but build a network that you can then monetize differently, which is the, what they're doing. You're building um, places you can then have a network of drivers that you know how much they earn, you can then give them financing loans, customer loans, consumer loans, uh, business loans, housing loans. But you can build an ecosystem around that flat fee business model that allows you to build and monetize a community of users, which is interesting. I think that's early days, probably a few years old, but I think that's interesting. Ride sharing in Africa has just been, it has a, it's had a very positive impact on the market. I'm very excited to see where it's going to go over the next couple of years. What's the consumer view? very good for consumers. You have more optionality. You don't have to use it. Hopefully over time, you have even more business models, even more di more different things you can do, different prices. And overall, you're more likely to have options. So good for consumers. For governments, I think for governments, it's going to take off a lot of the burden of building some infrastructure. Not all of it, because you still need some. So I think it's also good for governments. The thing governments still need to think about is just because these things are happening, you can't take your foot off the, the pedal. You still need to develop some basic infrastructure to enable things to go forward. I also need to set the guidelines and the, and the rules by which the market grows. And then finally, I think um, just focusing on Uber for a second, I, I think they are in a good position in Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm very happy with where, where they're going. I think, like I said before, it'd be hard to, for businesses to beat them at their own game. The things they need to work out, watch out for is just like the whole OPEI angle. I think OPEI is so interesting for many different reasons. I found that they were backed by uh, Sequoia China, which is also the same company that backs DD. So I was like, oh, wow. So Sequoia China backed DD. DD beat Uber in China. Sequoia China is now backing Opay because they see the same type of thing. So there's just a, I'm just, it's just a different kind of competitor. Also, like Bank Holy, I'm super interested in the business models because I think the business models is where competitors can like lever up and do something different in the market. And Uber may, may not be willing to do that for whatever reason. If you started from scratch, would you really start with a car in Sub-Saharan Africa? You may not start with that. The reason it started with a car is because it was another country's business model that was transplanted. So I just think that whole angle is interesting. But yeah, I think Uber is in a good place. I hope um, for them, they just try to think about how do we keep our drivers happy? How do we try to scale to some more cities? Because I noticed in some African countries, they were not scaling to different cities as quickly as some of their competitors, which is a little bit um, strange. They need to keep their eye on OPE. I just think there's something going on there. Um, and then they just need to continue to innovate while like figuring out their profitability stuff. So OPEI Uber thing is going to be the other piece I, I would love is Uber probably definitely has a playbook for how they make different kinds of decisions. 
just organizationally, it's, it's hard to make things one-off like that. So it'd be interesting to see how many of those, how are they being applied to Nigeria? Like, what do you expand to and why? Um, and is that the right metric? If you have different, like, marks you have to hit, um, metrics you have to hit to expand to a new city in from New York to, like, New Jersey, what metrics do you have to hit? But, like, how does it map out for for um, Nigeria and how complex or complicated it is? Because if you raise a lot of money, you tend to hire a lot of economists and machine learning people to build stuff. Yeah, and the metrics are based on your business model. So if a competitor has a different business model, they have a different expansion strategy. And over time, that expansion strategy may start to affect you in ways that you didn't expect because all your expectations were based on your existing business model. That's why I, I love yeah. that angle. I'm curious to see how it all yeah. develops. And the business model also helps the consumers because the consumers can do a bike or they can do a rickshaw or they can do a car or they can do a bus. So it's a win-win for everyone. It's just like, how well-funded will the competitors be to push forward those business models to actually get to a logical endpoint? Or will they just try, oh, Ope tried Obus and then they canceled it in like four months. Like, oh, we tried the bus thing. That's in four months. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's how it, it works. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I think on a final note, it doesn't matter if you're right. You have to be right and survive. You want to do recommendations? Uh, I can go. I can go. I, I, this week, this week, I finished this book called Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Second novel, Pulitzer Prize as well. He has two novels. I won the Pulitzer Prize. He's on a roll. Pretty good book about like a fiction about a boys' school in Florida and some slavery there. Particularly, the story was interesting, especially where we are in the U.S. now, but also given the the style of writing, there's something to be said about uh, writing that causes you to um, to feel. It's a, it's a very powerful thing, like writing that, that transmits emotions through words and, and connects you to the characters in the book. It was very beautifully, beautifully written. Well, Must be why I won a Pulitzer Prize. Well, you're saying that as though most books don't like drive human emotions. Well, most book you read are just blind. This was exceptional, I guess. This was exceptional in, in the style of writing and the content and the context. So it's not that it's... Like most books make you feel, which is fine. Books, words, you make you feel. I think most books don't make you feel as strongly. And not just because of the content, I think because of the writing. It's very hard to do. And a good chunk of it is in the editing. Anyways, that's that. The second thing that I was interesting that I saw this week is this idea around there's a lot of noise, a lot of conversations now about how remote work is the future and people are going to be remote. And therefore, it's going to happen to the um, a lot of the expensive cities on the coast in the US. So New York, New Jersey, San Francisco, Washington State are going to suffer because people are going to move from expensive coastal cities to um, cheaper Midwest, Middle America yeah, cities. Supposedly. The, the, the big reason why that will not happen um, so first of all, that's bullshit when it will mean revert. But the re- big reason why that will not happen is most people who live in this coastal cities in the first place, to be able to afford to live in these coastal cities in the first place, are uh, in dual income relationships where both partners work. If both partners work, you need four people to agree. And because either if somebody's switching jobs, it's getting a new employer, you're adding more people to the mix. And how do you get four people to agree where me and my partner have to agree, my partner's employer and their employer have to agree, and then we both have to agree that we want to move to Denver. I think that that's, that's where it's going to break down. Um, so we were unlikely to see the massive exodus from the coastal cities that everybody's predicting, that, that, that there are all kinds of anecdotal stories about. Because yeah. Are you saying this is your opinion or do you say you read it somewhere? Oh, I read it somewhere. Okay. I read it in an article somewhere. And you agree with it? I absolutely agree with it. I think I think the the complexity of the decision making criteria for majority of the people who live in those coastal cities is just not going to work out that way. Even if they could, so it's one thing. Even if the companies offer it, but even if the companies do offer it, you have to get so many people to agree, and it's such a complex decision that people are. Are you interested in remote working for yourself? No. Okay, so that's why I love Ray Dalio. Believability weighted rating. Since you're not interested in it, you're going to have some intrinsic bias to find information to support your opinion. So I, I'll read the piece, but I'll discount all the stuff you said by your preference. Look for look for links in the show notes. You're right. That's that's an interesting thesis. I feel, I'm, I'm slightly hurt by that, but it's okay. We can, we can still be friends. You, know, you, you may still be right. It's just, it's always good to, to wait it. That's like, the best people's opinions are like, they didn't make a choice, but then they still think it's a good choice for other people versus, oh, I'm a doctor, therefore you should be a doctor. You have to discount it, right? They're, because they're a doctor, they're seeing things through that lens. So it's like people's opinions, you have to weigh it based on the decisions they made. But Do you, correct, do you correct all your friends like this all the time or just me? That's why I'm a board of parties, I guess. Um, 
<laughs> Any other recommendations? I think that's that's all. For- okay, I have two recommendations. You will love these, by the way. These are very bankoli centric recommendations. So the first one is I started reading a lot about the Case Shiller Home Price Index. Now I'd heard about it a lot. I actually really I'm a big fan of like uh, Shiller. Um, I watched a bunch of his videos and um, some of his courses. So I started Nerd. reading about it, and I was like, oh man, this is super interesting. Just the way they calculate the like average home price over time and they're not like taking an average they're looking at the same equivalent house i won't go into financial like nerdy stuff here but it's super interesting to read about and it's actually very simple when you look at it oh it's a chart that shows average price over time so it's simple but it's also interesting to understand the nuance of the calculation behind it the second thing i found about it so hertz filed for bankruptcy about two weeks ago so then i was like oh i'm already quite familiar with like chapter 7 versus chapter 11 but i also understand the history of chapter 7 versus chapter like why did it evolve that way um, you want to just explain the dif- difference real quick? Oh, okay, so just... r- r- very quickly for the audience, like when you file for bankruptcy, there are two things that could happen. Chapter 7 is basically quote-unquote liquidation. It means it's unlikely that you're going to be able to pay back your debt. Therefore, they liquidate the company. So the company no longer exists. So a good example is Toys R Us. company no longer exists because the debt load is too high. Now, Chapter 11 is a little bit different. There's still some potential. Um, so that's a restructuring. So they restructure the debt and the company still exists, but they modify their debt load. Usually the equity holders get wiped out and then the debt holders agree for like a new valuation. So chapter seven is much worse because <laughs> you don't exist, but chapter 11 is also bad, especially if you're an equity holder, but it may be fine. It's really just allows you to tell the people that, that you owe, wait for me, I'm coming. Um, <laughs> and you can restructure certain kinds of debt. Um, when you're in chapter 11. I think that's pretty yeah, cool. But, but, but some of them, you have to tell them it's actually done because some of the debt holders don't get any money. So some of them wait for me, but some of them are just screwed, especially on the equity side. So as a result of that, I started um, reading some Khan Academy videos because after I looked at the history, I was like, oh, who's the best person that explains this on the internet? So anyone who's interesting and they don't understand what I just said, go to YouTube and type in like, Khan Academy Chapter 7. He's actually... And there will be, be links in the show notes. There'll be links. It's, he's like an amazing teacher. Khan actually came to my graduation at MIT. And I'll, at the time, I actually didn't watch any Khan Academy videos. When I started watching this video, I'm like, this guy is a great teacher. So yeah, shout out to all my teachers when I was a child. There's a huge difference between a good teacher and a not so good teacher. Like small wins, my small win was awesome. So I learned how to cook uh, chili tofu seasoned with dates last week with an air fryer. And I was like, oh, not a single person likes the sound of that. Okay, fine. So to the one guy <laughs> there who likes it, send me an email, info.affability.com. I'll give you a high five. Um, but yeah, <laughs> chili tofu with an air fryer. First of all, I never cooked with an air fryer before. When I was a kid, obviously you cook with oil. Apparently, I live in America now. You don't need that. So air fryer. Second of all, I never seasoned anything with dates before. It was just an experience. Um, qu- quite tasty. I assembled my desk over the last weekend. I never talked about that. I finally assembled it. I got a Jarvis fully. Message me. This is free. Uh, I got a Jarvis fully. Um, it's a great desk. It just moves up and down. So cool. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, topics you'd like to hear, or just want to say hello, please email info at afrobility.com. Thanks.